This is the word of the Lord. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who has swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now, Father, we come to you because all scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training and godliness so that the man and woman of God may be equipped for good works. Father, by your spirit, would you now illuminate our eyes? Would you encourage us and build us up and edify us and challenge us and rebuke us, whatever needs to be done? We want to be people who are led by your spirit through the word of God. We want to live our lives by submitting ourselves under the authority of your word to live as you have called us to live, as we are called the light of the world. And we are not to light our light and put it under a bed, but to put it out in the middle of the room so that everyone may see and come to our light and come to your light and ultimately glorify our Father who is in heaven through our good works. So would you glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word and may Jesus be exalted. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 2, but before we do that, I thought it would just be helpful to kind of go back to the beginning of the first letter. So turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me give us some background, build up what's going on here, and then we can get to our text and work our way through that. False teaching in Ephesus, as in Crete, in the, the letter to Titus, is growing rapidly. And uh, many people are swerving from the faith and following false doctrine. Paul is writing to Timothy to lead the charge against these false teachers. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
So there's the charge to Timothy. Confront these people who are teaching contrary to sound doctrine. What's the purpose? Why is Paul telling this to Timothy? There's a goal in mind. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Whenever we go to correct anybody who is in error, we'll define error a little bit later, but the whole goal of doing that is love. It's love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. There's no motive behind it except to show love so that that person would come to saving knowledge in faith. Go down to verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me much strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul himself is saying, I was a false teacher at one point. I didn't understand the truth. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He uses himself as an example of what these false teachers are doing right now. But he declares how wonderfully merciful and gracious God is that he would save a wretch like Paul. And Paul says he can do the same with them. And he desires to do that with them. So that's why it's the aim of a Christian or a pastor or a teacher to confront error with love. That comes from a pure heart. There's no ulterior motive here. It's just because I love you so much. How's he going to do that? Well, if you turn over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And that word, all people, would include the false teachers. I've asked myself if I've studied this text. In my time of prayer, have I included false teachers? Have I included those who have been snatched and entrapped by the snares of the devil to do his will? Answer, no. I haven't. I do call down fire from heaven on them because of the damage that it does to people. But this is not what Paul tells us here. We are to pray. Then we're to pray for kings and governments and people in high position that Christians may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life, dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Watch this now. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. Now, of course, we'll discern here that this is not God's providential will that all people be saved. But it is his moral will. And the moral will of God can be disobeyed. So, for instance, it's God's will that no one would sin. It's God's will that no one would harm the innocent. But yet people disobey that constantly and do do that. 
But according to God's moral will, it is his desire that all would come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And he's going to do that through Timothy and the men that he has to put as elders over the church. Look at verse, uh, chapter 3. Saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he gives the list of the qualifications. Now, whether these false teachers were uh, not necessarily pastoring a church, maybe they were just teaching people on the side and, and, and thinking, you know, that they want to become a teacher, but they don't know how to do that. Um, this is, might what happened. But Paul tells Timothy to put godly men who meet qualifications in the churches so that they can protect people from false teaching and themselves teach sound doctrine. This is why we have leaders, to feed the sheep of God and to protect them. Now, let me just go on a side note here real quick. That's not in my notes. Thank God for your leaders here. Amen? Thank God for the, for the faithful elders who have served here for years. Thank God for Pastor John faithfully giving his life and devotion to studying God's word so that he not only lives it, but can also teach you so that you can live it. Thank God that he protects you. Thank God that he's not afraid to take his staff and go out and reach you and say, come back, come back. You've got wonderful leaders and I just heard that you have three men that are candidates for elders. And I give them my approval right now, if that matters. I've talked with all of them. I love their hearts. They're wonderful men who have God's word and your good in mind. They're not here to get in a position of leadership to say, oh boy, who can I charge now? And who can I just abuse? No. That's why this is such a wonderful church. So in chapter 4, Paul, prophesying through the Holy Spirit, says that in later times, some are going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There's the damaging effects of false teaching. It condemns people. These people are giving ears, and, and it's being prophesied that this is going to happen towards the end. This is why he's put elders in place. Go to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Verse 3, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that's false teaching. Anything that does not agree with what Jesus taught and agree according to godliness you can see what these look like. Matter of fact, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits, right? Because they come actually in sheep and wolf's clothing. So it's very hard to detect that. Jude would say they're like stealth, you know, coming in unnoticed. But Paul says here in verse 4 that they are puffed up with conceit, understanding nothing. And he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. They're argumentative. Instead of standing behind the pulpit and preaching the pure word of God, they got motives and they want to talk about arguments and talk about things that just don't matter. They also produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved 
deprived him with the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're concerned about money. They're doing it as a job, not to necessarily care for them. So Paul is now telling Timothy to lead the charge, to put men in place, and to go there and confront them. So you would think, I mean, it, it is normal, right? How many in here really do like confrontation? When you have to have that talk, when you have to confront a brother or sister because you see sin going on in their life and you don't know how to do it and fear comes upon you, right? Same thing with Timothy. So in the second letter, chapter 1, Paul just starts addressing Timothy's fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, Timothy, but of power, love, and self-control. He's timid. He doesn't want to suffer. He doesn't want to be persecuted. He wants to be loved and he wants to be liked. And I understand that. So he tells him in verse 8, Timothy, therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor me of his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. Jump in, Timothy. Get, get, in, get into the pool of suffering. Get in with us and fight the good fight of faith. How does he do that? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You rely upon God's grace. Timothy does not need to pray for this. He just needs to rely upon God's grace. And then, of course, what you've heard from me, entrust to many faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them now, we have to stop there and ask ourselves, who are the them? Many different opinions on this. Some say actually just Christians in general. Some actually say, believe that he's to remind the false teachers not to do this. Some say um, he is to remind those faithful men that he's entrusted with this gospel. I tend to agree with the latter, that he is supposed to remind them who's going to be placed as elders and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now, there's two meanings here. This basically would literally say not to war against God's word. The Greek word actually means word war. Fighting over the meaning and definition of words that would oppose God's truth. But also, he will go on to say, look at verse 16 and 23, avoid irreverent babble and have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. When you stand behind the pulpit, that's not the goal, to strike up controversies and to talk about things that are going on. Just This is why he said in verse 15, you are to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Cut it straight. Teach the word of God. You know, it's amazing that God has chosen to hide, if you were to say, his power in the word of God. You don't need to change it. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to take away from it. You just speak the word of God, and that's where God's power through the Holy Spirit moves. But yet today, you have many men who are adding things to it and talking about each and everything other than what Scripture says. And most of you know that if you ever have somebody stand behind this pulpit and say, boy, I've got a great word for you today, and it's probably something new that you never heard, you probably should have Sean come up immediately and escort him out. 
all were doing when singing and actually teaching the scripture is mainly reminding ourselves of what scripture says. It's just reminding ourselves, here's how you're supposed to live. You're to take off the former way of life and you're to put on the new things. And it's just a constant reminder. I need that too. This is why we read the scriptures so that we can live a life that is pleasing to God's sight. So this is a theme throughout both letters about avoiding, which was, by the way, the, the, the natural thing to do, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that men are to pray, lifting up holy hounds with, without arguing and having controversies. That was normal in the early days where men would just gather together and strike up a conversation, and before you know it, they're having to separate one another because they're arguing over words. It means this. No, it means this. No, it means this. No, it means this. And before you know it, there's a battle going on. And you have that today. You have it today. Um, I remember in seminary, I, I, I don't um, participate in social media, but I remember in seminary um, reading some Twitter quotes. And my goodness, these are brothers in the Lord. And it just seemed like a huge battlefield. Some guy would post something and then, Somebody respond, and then somebody responds over that, and somebody responds over that. And before you know it, there's 4,000 tweets on it, and it settles nothing. Paul says these things are useless. Matter of fact, it actually ruins the hearer. That word ruin actually means, and we get our English word, catastrophe from it. It does no good to quarrel about words here. Teach the Bible. My soul needs the word of God. I don't want to hear jokes. I don't really care about your week. I don't care about the, the mask mandates or the vaccine mandates. What does God's word say? And this is what Paul is telling Timothy to remind them. So we now get to our, our verses 24 through 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The first thing we see here, even though it's not explicitly stated, is that we are to confront error. It's damaging. Some of us may have family members and friends who are in cults, who attend churches that, that um, are, are contrary to the words of Christ. Christians are to confront it. We don't deny that, right? Jude 3, we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Absolutely we are. But the, the thing is, how do we contend that's the whole goal. And we can't forget verse 5 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. It's from love, from a pure heart and good conscience that we are doing this. But unfortunately, what you have today is you have brothers arguing over things that are not necessarily clear in Scripture, and they're just beating one another with it. I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. You're wrong. I've heard some really weird things. I've actually heard somebody say that if you do not attend a church that is reformed, you're in a false church. I don't know where they come up from that. I'm reformed. I'm a five-point Calvinist. 
But there are many wonderful, godly, Jesus-preaching, saving saints who are not reformed in their theology. And people just, I mean, it's almost as if they, they do this just to prove their point. And I understand that temptation because Cheryl and I came from a charismatic church before we attended Pacific Hope. And I was so thankful that when Pastor John would sit down with me and we would have lunch and he would, he would explain. He would not push stuff on me, but he would just point me to the scriptures and allow me to read it for myself and understand and let the Spirit of God teach me. But coming from seminary, you just get bombarded with biblical theology and systematic theology and languages and you just, you're in the Bible just for years and years and years and the temptation is to come back home and tell everybody that they're wrong. <laughs> right? Can I just lovingly say this to us? And I want you to make sure you take this. The reason that we want to learn theology is not to win arguments is not to prove points. The reason we want to understand the Bible and learn theology and sound doctrine is so that we can become more like Christ. I had one professor say, by the time you graduate and end seminary, if you're not more in love with Jesus, you've wasted a whole lot of money. But unfortunately, when you just get bombarded with that knowledge, right, 1 Corinthians comes into mind where, where knowledge, what? Just puffs up. Like Paul says, if I have the mysteries and know all, know all mysteries and I have faith to remove mountains and I can do this and that, but I don't have what? Love. Useless. So the goal that when we confront somebody who's an heir is not to win an argument or prove a point, but really to show that we love them so that they can come to the truth and be saved. Amen? So let's, let's get here. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Difficult to understand? Pretty simple, right? This is what we call a present imperative with a negative, by the way. Present mood basically means it's a continual. It's not a one-time thing. Imperative is a command. Paul's commanding here with the negative, which means no matter what, no matter whatever circumstance might be, a servant of the Lord's attitude must never be quarrelsome. That's not what a servant, by the way, doulos, slave, which not necessarily is just the pastor or the teachers or the elders, but it's every believer. We're all servants. You all teach in some way at your workplace or school or neighborhood and stuff like that. But you are to not under no matter what circumstance might be, not to be quarrelsome. And this word quarrelsome, let me just give you a few words. War, dispute, fight, or strive. We are not to be like that. That does no good. Nobody listens to that. In the secular Greek, it was used to describe a wind of such high intensity that it leveled everything in its path like a hurricane. There are many brothers and sisters out there who just level other people with their words because they don't actually believe the way you do and they just blow them over. That's not God glorifying. That does not show Christ at all. 
We are never given the right at all to level someone with our words, no matter what they believe. We're not. Charles Spurgeon warned of this when he talked about the Lord's bondservant. Listen to what he said. He warned them as the Lord's bondservant as being one who goes about with theological revolvers in their ecclesiastical trousers. Oh, you don't believe like I do? Bam, 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 bam. You know, I, I, I stand before you, and, I, and I, I am zealous for the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I try to study it every single day. I try to live according to this. But I'm going to tell you right now, I haven't even scratched the surface. And yeah, I have a seminary degree in my office, okay? Okay, big deal. This is an infinite book. And I have a finite mind. I can't wrap my pea brain about all of this stuff. It's just, God is just huge. I don't understand his ways. And to think that you have finally arrived and you know it perfectly, I'd be very careful of that. The NIV application commentary. I wanted to read this to you. Fred Herring he's the author of Show Me God, said this. He had engaged in a stimulating dialogue with scientists with a secular viewpoint. And he, rest, he recently said that I have found any one thing to be a key in getting through to skeptics today, this is it. Have an attitude of gentleness and respect towards unbelievers and their views. Put negatively, the greatest single turnoff for skeptics is the Christian who sets up an us versus them argument between Christianity and science. It's either my way or the highway. And I'm all for truth. Again, we are to contend for the faith. It's just how we go about doing it. When you come across as very arrogant and sharp and harsh with your words, is that going to get their ears to open and listen? Of course not. This is why, and I've heard many, uh, many in the LGBTQ and the homosexual movement look at Christians as very arrogant, um, short-minded, very mean, bigots, harsh, and it's saddened. I've heard it. I've seen it. Most of you have probably heard of Rosaria Butterfield, who's just a wonderful speaker. I heard her back in seminary, who used to be an atheist and uh, 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 was involved in a lesbian lifestyle. Professor at Syracuse. She was telling uh, about at one gay parade that she was speaking and that Christians were holding up signs and screaming in their ears, AIDS is God's judgment on homosexuality. That's what they were doing as they would march by. AIDS is God's judgment on homosexuality. And I'm thinking, well, how do they know that? I don't find that. And I'm thinking, where is the good news in that? Where, 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 where is there any hope at all in that? I mean, at least if you're going to say AIDS is God's judgment on homosexuality, you would think there would be another one that would say, but Jesus can heal you and save you and deliver you. I love how Spurgeon would say, of course there has to be bad news presented because then you wouldn't really fully grasp the good news. But my goodness, once the bad news is over, make a beeline to the cross. That's the hope. So she wrote an article in her, in her school newspaper and a pastor had read it. 
So he called her and said, I would like to invite you over for dinner. And she thought, okay, you know, this will be a good time to really gather more information for my book that I'm about to write. So she went over there. And she said this. At the dinner, he didn't share the gospel, invite her to church. He just befriended her. Heard her story. She said, Ken not only shared the gospel with me later in our relationship, but more than that, he was a good neighbor to me. He didn't look down upon her. And I think to myself, if it weren't for the grace of God, where would I be today? Who knows? I could probably be an alcoholic or in prison or who knows? As Paul would say, as were some of you, right? But you've been washed. You've been sanctified by the Spirit of God, and that's our hope for them. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable, He repented of his sin in front of me, and he thanked God for all things. And as he prayed, I knew that Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And that is our God. Of course he's holy. Absolutely he will judge. And our goal is that he won't, that they would be saved and come to the saving truth. But I love how she put that through just his prayers and his lifestyle that he didn't come down harsh on her. She recognized this God is merciful. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. You know, many people differ from us, even in in evangelical churches. Remember Paul in, in, in Romans chapter 14? Some observe a different day than another day. Or some observe some foods that you should not eat and some do. But what was Paul's response to that? Don't quarrel about that. If it's going to cause your brother to stumble, what? Just don't do it. Paul says, I became a Jew. I became a Gentile. I became whatever I had to become so that why? I may save some. That's his whole goal. And you would expect the apostle Paul who did contend. Remember when he confronted Peter to his face? But he did it out of love. Or when he confronted the Judaizers in Jerusalem. It wasn't to go them and show them. He used to be on their side. But he went with a spirit of love. A servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to who? Everyone. All. All. Without exception. We never lose our temper. We never quarrel in a mean-spirited arrogant type of way. By the way, remember Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, he's not giving us a spirit of fear, but he has what? A power, love, and self-control. Sound mind. Self-control. That's, that's, just, that's a person who is influenced and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and doesn't fly off. So there's the negative. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring uh, evil. Able to teach. Some of you might have uh, grown up in, in sports. I grew up in sports, and I can recall some of my coaches 
they were so mean and so brutal to me that I remember playing in the outfield one day praying that a ball would not be hit to me. Because if I messed up any way, I'm done. I'll be benched. I'll be ridiculed in front of my players, my, my teammates. This person able to teach is one who gets the best out of their people, is able to communicate and to encourage and get the best out of them. They are teachers who instruct, and when you do make a mistake, they're very patient. This Greek word here, able to teach, does not refer so much to possessing vast knowledge. Oh, I have all this knowledge but as the one who has the ability to communicate effectively. Is it getting through? Is it, is it giving the person the opportunity to see and to come to faith? We speak the truth, and yes, we let them know that sin has consequences, but we tell them with compassion and kindness because God always works and restoration. Isn't that the goal? I can remember being, being uh, an elder and having to uh, administer church discipline. That's not fun. You just wish you didn't have to do that. I wish it would just go away. I just wish it would get better. But sometimes it doesn't. And therefore, relying upon the grace of God, you confront the sin, you confront the person in love and hope that they will change. That's the whole goal. So we're to be kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil. This, this, base, this word basically means that when you go in love to somebody and you tell them that they're heir and that they're in error in hopes of restoring them, they look at you and say, who the heck do you think you are? You're just mean. You just don't want me to have fun. And you realize, oh no, I'm being blasphemy. I'm being slandered here. And I'm trying to help the person, but yet they can't see it, so they now become evil towards me. And Paul says that when they do that, which they will, what are we to do? We are to endure it with patience. We are not to come back and say, how dare you say that to me? I tried to help you. Now I'm just going to let you have it. No, no, no. We're to patiently endure evil, tolerating evil, or as God would put it, as he is, long-suffering holding back under the temptation to let them have it. There are many people out there today, with, especially with the doctrines of grace, who just blast people with it. And they're like, I can't believe you don't understand this. I can't believe you don't believe in this. I mean, it's right here in Scripture, and it's just like, Wah. I mean, I, I remember. I learned the doctrines of grace. I learned about election and all that from Pastor John. But he never one time beat it into me. He just said, what do you think of this? Look, read this. What do you think of this? How do you interpret it? And blah, blah, blah. And I just began to read it myself, and I began to see it. And by the way, that just didn't happen immediately. It took a while. I don't think really none of us come to saving faith, believing in the doctrines of grace and, you know, God's sovereignty and election and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm all for that. But my goodness, can, can we just be patient with people and let them find out, let God reveal that to them, just keep studying and stuff like that? You don't have to beat that into them. How are we doing? 
Doing okay? So you don't blow up, you don't argue when they believe in free will. And, you know, I think of Whitfield and Wesley, who basically came together as friendships at a very young age, and they taught Bible studies together. And Whitfield was a strong Calvinist, and Wesley was a strong Arminian, and they got into it. And boy, they just, they went at it, and they separated. Finally, I think it was Whitfield, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, just came to a census and wrote him a letter and said, brother, I love you, and this is not worth it. You go and teach God's word and save the lost how God's told you to do it, and I'm going to go and teach God's word and, and save the lost how God's told me to do it. And Whitfield died, and Wesley ended up doing his funeral. But this is what we're talking about. It's, it's you know, things that, that just aren't crystal clear in the Scripture. Eschatology. Um, you know, uh, Martin Luther with the Swiss Christians, you know, this is my body. Luther took it literally. They're like, no, 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 that's supposed to be symbolically. And I mean, it, it just, it ruined a lot of relationships in that. This is what it's talking about when it's quarreling about words. Is this really needed? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. I see that word opponents and immediately my sports nature takes over and I'm thinking, go get them. You think Paul would say, boy, those opponents, go get them. Let them have it. But he says here that we are to correct them with gentleness. Why? Why would we need to correct our opponents with gentleness? Because nobody listens when you come overbearing and in a mean-spirited way, right? Let me ask you spouses. When one of you spout, when one of the spouses talks to the other spouse and makes you feel like you're two years old, do you listen? Do you go, boy, wow, thank you for sharing that with me. That no, you don't. What happens? Walls go up, arguments happen, fights happen, and you don't hear a word. Correcting our opponents with gentleness. Remember Tim Flannery, a player for the San Diego Padres, when we were 84 team, we had a manager named Dick Williams. This man was a no-nonsense guy. Now, he won. He went to the World Series in 84. But he was a no-nonsense guy. If you did not do it the way he said, out you go. I don't care what you do out, uh, uh, apart from the field, but when you put on the Padre uniform and you're on the field, you do what I tell you to do. And Tim Flannery said in his book, he is the greatest manager I ever played for. He got the best out of me. But then he said these words, but when he retires, I'm going to run him over with my car. <laughs> so he was a really good coach, but my goodness, I mean, he hated him so much. He just wished that guy was dead. We're not to get sucked in to the arguments. We're not to get sucked into the quarreling about that. That does no good. Rather, we're to keep our cool and remain calm under the heated debate. By the way, that's a fruit of the Spirit, right? We can't do this in our natural flesh. We can't do this in and of ourselves. We must be possessed with the Holy Spirit. This is why we pray and we read the Scriptures and like put on, like we do clothes, we put on the Holy Spirit, and we put on love and kindness and gentleness. And the reason we're to correct our opponents with gentleness, by the way, is because the weapons of our warfare are what? Not carnal. 
Paul told the Ephesians believers that what? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Who are we wrestling against? Principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness that are behind this. Which is what Paul goes on and says, that, they may, uh, that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, I think about false teachers and I ask myself, do these people really know what they're doing? Is there a, is there a motive? And, 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 and there might be. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know a person's heart. But I wonder if some are very sincere and actually believe that they are teaching the word of God. And they're doing the will of God when it's just blatant air and stuff like that. When we correct our opponents with gentleness and we don't quarrel and we're, we're able to teach, rightly divide the word of truth, we're able to communicate with using gentle words, patiently enduring their responses, it's at that point that God may grant them repentance. Isn't that the goal? That God would grant them repentance? Why? Because they've been captured by the snare of the devil. That word snare actually means that it was just unexpected. They didn't see it coming. It's like walking out in the mountains and stepping in a bear trap. That wasn't your goal. You were going to go on a wonderful hike, and all of a sudden you stepped on a trap that somebody left, and now you're stuck. You're trapped. Somehow these people have given place to the devil, and they're being used by him to do his will. So the goal is not to get even. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is that they would come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil that they are being used. And we do that by not being quarrelsome, but gentle to everyone. Able to teach the word of truth, absolutely. Correcting our opponents with the spirit of gentleness. Not everyone believes like we do, and that's okay. I have many friends who are in churches that I necessarily wouldn't attend, but I mean, you, you know, you have people that will say, well, you'll never teach in this pulpit unless it's from the King James Version. And I'm fine. If that's how they are, that's fine. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's wonderful translations out there, and I do love the King James Version. Some people won't attend a church because they lift their hands and they're a little bit more shouting as they're, they're singing and stuff like that. Whatever. That doesn't mean it's a bad church. As long as they're preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it's just maybe their methods are different, and that's okay. There, there's grace in that. But you don't want to sit there and think, because they do those things, that they're in error or that they're false. I'd just be very careful so let me remind us, when we are mean-spirited, harsh with our words, this actually could prevent them from not coming to repentance. Someone is corrected when they know that they are loved, when they know that you have your, their best interest at hand. They know that you understand them and that you love them for who they are. 
and that you don't want them to perish in hell. When they begin to see that, and that takes time, don't be afraid, church, to make relationships with people who are in sin and in error. It will, come, it will come to the point where you could talk to them, but develop that relationship. Truly, generally care for them with the goal that they would ultimately be saved. So let me just give you quick three things just to think about before we close. Just three things. Is it worth arguing over? Number one, ask yourself that. Is it truly worth arguing over? Oh, you're all mill. I'm pre-mill. Okay. I understand both arguments or your post-mill or dispensational. We were talking about this earlier. I told the men in the room that my professor, Dr. Tom Schreiner, who I absolutely love and I trust his, his books and his words, and I talked to him. You know, he has gone from historic pre-mill to ah-mill four times, and right now he's on ah-mill. <laughs> but what's that saying? You know, honestly, that made me feel good because I would look to him a lot for answers. And he would basically say, <laughs> I don't know. I'm try, I, I, try, I mean, this is a top five Pauline scholar in the world. This guy knows his Paul's letters here. He knows his, his original languages, yet he just reads and sometimes he sees it differently and stuff like that. And his, his Romans commentary is revived a second time. All because in, in, in uh, Romans 7, was Paul a Christian or not? And he's gone back and forth on that. Again, be very careful. Yes, on the essentials, of course, the things that are absolutely clear, we are, we are in unity on that, of course. But the things that are not clear, give room. Just because you believe that and I believe that, okay. We're still brothers. We're, we're, we're still on the same team with the same goal of saving the lost. So is it worth arguing over? That's the first thing you have to answer. Number two, if it is, if it is worth arguing, would you please do it in a spirit of love? Would you let the person know that you are talking with, maybe even passionately, that I'm doing this because I love you? I have spoken with many people like that. The goal that I'm talking to you right now is because I love you and I don't want to see consequences of your lifestyle. And they have returned evil on me. I never want to speak to you again. And I've had to patiently endure that. Some have listened, some haven't. This is all in God's timing. But if it is worth arguing over, do it with a spirit of love and not to win an argument. Be careful of being a know-it-all and that you have all the right interpretations and everybody else doesn't. And then finally, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is this bringing God glory? Ask yourself the question. If it's not, don't do it. Don't say it. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything. I do. I do not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Let me just remind us real quick. The goal of learning theology and sound doctrine is not to win arguments, 
but to be more like Christ and go out into the world and show people the love of God in demonstration. And perhaps God would grant them repentance and they'll be in here next Sunday worshiping God with us. That's the goal. Amen? So Father, we are so grateful for your loving kindness. God, thank you for your patience with us. As were some of you. Lord, I can remember very vividly my days before Christ, as many people here can. We were heading for destructions. Our hands were used for the enemy to please our own flesh and to do our own will. And we have been saved by the wonderful grace and mercy of you. Father, forgive us when we've been argumentative. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that we have all knowledge and don't express that in love. Father, I am so grateful for this body of Christ here at Pacific Hope. Pastor John has fed them and fed them well. And I pray because of that that they would become more like Christ that they would zealously stand for the truth. But when it comes to opposing somebody who is in error, blatant error, would you help them to remember this verse, that a servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, correcting opponents gentleness, with gentleness. Perhaps, God, you would grant them repentance and that they would escape from the snare of the devil and doing his will to now coming into the kingdom of light and doing your will. Father, thank you for this ministry of reconciliation that you have given to us. Help us to search and seek and find those who are lost this week and lovingly, gently approach them and share the wonderful good news. And as we do that, I pray that you would open up blind eyes and deaf ears and hardened hearts, and Lord, that you would fill this church with new believers. They would baptize every week, and that your glory would just be put on display, and your love would definitely be noticed. I'm grateful for this body of believers. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.